It's Monday, May the 17th, 2021. More than 1.4 billion vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Char, The Economist Science Correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loder, The Health Policy Editor. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We're following the vaccine story as it happens. Today, we'll dig into new modelling by The Economist data team that lays bare the true death toll of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we'll ask what it all means for the vaccination race. Natasha, hello. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. I've been working incredibly hard on a story for one of my favourite editors on the paper. That favourite editor is joining us right now. Oliver Morton, The Economist Briefing Editor. Oliver, it's good to see you. Um, What have you been up to? Well, we put together a big package on both what the pandemic really looks like using some quite sophisticated modelling from our data team and also on what the jab is all about, on how many vaccines there are and where they're coming from and whose arms they're getting into. Well, it all dovetails very nicely. Thank you both very much. We'll discuss all of that in a lot more detail throughout the show. The story of the pandemic usually goes something like this. The coronavirus struck in waves, hitting America and Europe particularly hard. Latin America and lately India too have been ravaged. But in much of the developing world, COVID-19 didn't seem to bring the devastation many had feared. That narrative is supported by the official numbers for COVID-19 cases and deaths. The trouble is that story is incomplete. What happens when you take into account all the excess deaths in the past year, not just those officially linked to COVID-19? The Economist data team did just that. Their model allowed them to find the true death toll of the pandemic. According to official statistics, the coronavirus has killed 3.3 million people worldwide. Sondre Solstad is a senior data journalist with The Economist. Our modelling suggests that this is a massive underestimate. The true tally is probably closer to 10 million, and with 95% probability between 7.1 million and 12.7 million. But the official stats say only 3 million. That's an incredible difference. How can the official statistics be so wrong? The short answer is that to get counted in the official statistics, you need to be tested. And poor countries, and even middle-income countries, can't afford or don't elect to prioritize testing everyone who die. So the 10 million figure that you have, where did you get that from? Where does that come from? Essentially, what you want to look at if you want to figure out the true toll of the pandemic is excess deaths. How many have died so far compared to what we would expect in normal years? The problem is that many countries don't report excess deaths. So what you need to do is to estimate excess deaths in every country and every week in which it is unknown. The way we went about doing that was to collect data on as many relevant indicators we could find, over 120 indicators, and then try to find patterns between these and excess deaths when they were known. We then used these patterns to estimate what excess deaths would be when the data was not available. 
you, you said that not every country in the world collects this data, first of all. So, for example, in a country that doesn't collect any of this at all, how do you fill in that gap? It seems like a huge hole in the modeling. Yes, it, it is really hard. But a situation in which we don't know excess stats is not a situation in which we know nothing at all. For one thing, we know the official COVID deaths and cases and testing positivity, but there is other information as well. You can look at how much people move around, what their governments do to fight the virus, and you can look at things like demography. Okay, so let's dig into the numbers that you found. So go back to that slightly shocking statistic of 10 million deaths. How does that vary across the world? Where do these missing deaths mostly feature? The missing deaths mostly feature in poor and middle-income countries. Uh, and in particular, places like South America, Africa, and in large part Asia, where we believe very few of deaths to COVID-19 are included in official counts. So can you give me some examples? What kinds of places are come out differently, according to your modelling, compared with the official statistics? Sure. So I think the easiest thing to do is to start where we know excess deaths and compare that to the official statistics. So for instance, in countries like the United States, excess deaths and COVID deaths are really close because testing is quite prevalent. So their excess deaths are about 7% higher than COVID deaths. However, in Romania, Iran, South Africa, and Mexico, excess deaths are more than double those officially attributed to COVID-19. But these are not the worst countries in terms of official death counts underestimating the true toll. In Egypt, the data we have, which ends last year, suggests that excess deaths are 14 times the number of COVID deaths. 14 times. That's incredible. That's an incredible difference. Do we know if these differences are due to just an inability to count deaths properly because there's no infrastructure for testing? Or is there something more sinister going on? Are are there countries trying to hide the information that's going on as well? I think that the vast majority of this mismatch is just due to limited testing. That said, there are some statistics that are, I think, particularly suspect. Russia comes into mind here, where there are five excess deaths for every COVID death. I think if they had counted in a similar way to other countries, the two numbers would have been closer. So going back to your modelling, from the numbers you find, how does the experience of the rich world compare to that of the poor world? In the rich world, I, I think the narrative has been that there have been two waves. If you look at the true shape of the pandemic, though, as measured by excess deaths and the sort of global picture, while there was a brief lull in the start of this year, deaths per day have pretty much been increasing since March of last year. But I think the big difference is in the toll of the pandemic overall. The official deaths suggest that the vast majority of deaths have happened in very rich countries. I think if you start looking at the data, what you find is that most deaths actually have not happened in the richest countries, but rather in middle and developing countries. That said, though, in terms of deaths per population, death rates are on average lower in the poor world. We believe that this is probably because these poor countries have very young populations and the disease is so dependent on age. However, that they have almost comparable death rates and that some of the worst hit countries in the world are far from the richest or oldest, for instance, Mexico or Peru, has two quite grim implications. The first is that if death rates are comparable, then a higher share of the old in poor countries die. The second is that a lot more people are infected because for every infection, 
there is a lower probability that people will die. That means more mutations and possibly more people with long COVID. Natasha, can I come to you first? Uh, can you just reflect on some of the findings from this modelling that uh, Sondre and his team have done? One of the things that I was really pleased to see very clearly was that the excess deaths were being found in middle-income countries and that poorer countries, whilst they obviously have been hit by COVID um, and there will be some uncounted excess deaths, they are not having these sort of huge numbers of excess deaths that we're seeing in these middle-income countries. I think the other message that I really take from this modelling is that the pandemic is getting worse, it's not getting better. And, you know, I've been quite an optimist and I actually thought 2021 would be better than 2020. I was wrong. It's going to be worse. Ollie, you, you've been looking at this data very, very carefully. And I just wonder what this told you that we haven't seen before or known before about the uh, pandemic. I think it's the way in which, although you do see wave patterns in individual countries because behaviour changes as sickness grows, lots of different waves are adding up into what is really a fairly, a fairly steady ramp up around the world. So what we're seeing or acknowledging as waves so far, actually is the pandemic spreading to different places? I think there's a slightly broader point, which is that the words pandemic and epidemic are used kind of interchangeably. But if you look in individual nations, you are often seeing epidemics that have a straightforward wave function. We've been treating, as Sandre said, the pandemic as basically looking like Europe, Britain and America, that it goes up and then comes down and goes up again. But in fact, the pandemic has a different sort of shape to these individual epidemics from which it's composed. Natasha, what does the results of this model tell you about how the vaccination programme is going on around the world and, and perhaps how it should change? It tells me that we need to focus vaccinations on countries where COVID's having the biggest impact. And so that to me is Asia and Latin America at the moment. But at the same time as doing that, we also need to continue to keep our focus on healthcare workers and the vulnerable all over the world in low-income countries because they very much are at risk. And we have a chance now to vaccinate these people before another wave, a different variant arrives perhaps, which could be much more devastating. On that point, actually, uh, we discussed this last week in the jab about trying to make more vaccines and the problems with that. Last week, we focused on waiving intellectual property rights and whether or not that was a good thing. What's the most important thing that richer countries can be doing or pharmaceutical companies can be doing to sort of up their supply of vaccines? The most important thing that needs to happen right now is to support the supply chains to make sure we get to this you know, mythical 10.9 billion doses of vaccine that we want to produce. One of the wrinkles that um, happened was that the firm Novavax, which is supposed to be producing 2 billion doses a year, pushed back their estimates for when they're going to start producing by about a quarter. And one of the reasons that's slowing them down is they're having problems with their supply chain. And they're not alone. And I'd like to see the G7 step in and have America um, participate in helping to figure out some of these supply chain problems. One of the things that I really took away from the work Natasha did last week and our colleague Hal was that getting the supply chain up as far as we did, we're sort of like 
living off some of the capital that was invested last year. And the supply chain that we've got, which is producing huge numbers of vaccines, is also kind of optimised at the level that was preordained by that investment last year. And though you would think, well, now you've expanded the supply chain up to this, then you can just expand it further. But in fact, the supply chain is a complex thing that's very finely balanced. And actually, it wasn't designed to be expanded further. It was designed to work. And I think the complexities of trying to keep it working while expanding are much more complex uh, than people, certainly than I previously understood. And they really do merit a further round of serious strategically oriented investment to try and sort out some of the problems. Natasha, what about the vaccine that's out there already but isn't being used, especially in rich countries? I mean, getting that to some of the middle-income countries where this virus is really ripping through would seem to be a priority. Donating it would seem to be a priority, getting it into arms. Well, at the moment, the only vaccine of any quantity that we know is sitting around is the AstraZeneca vaccine in America that could be used in other countries. But that's only 60 million doses. Many rich countries have a good supply of vaccine coming in and they will have surpluses this year. At the moment, only 100,000 doses have actually flowed through COVAX, the global vaccine sharing initiative. And that's nothing. We need to see hundreds of millions of doses moving through that initiative as quickly as possible. Oliver, can I ask you about the sort of divide between the rich and the middle and low income countries? I mean, just to put that into context, for example, in America right now, the Centers for Disease Control has just said, People who've been fully vaccinated can meet people indoors. They don't have to wear masks. It's looking positive there. But in many other parts of the world, we're very, very far away from anyone doing that. Is there going to be a divide uh, between the rich and the middle and low income countries? There's clearly going to be. I mean, there is already a vast healthcare divide. In some ways, it reminds me slightly of the late 90s in the AIDS pandemic, uh, when in rich countries, highly effective antiretrovirals were really changing the way things worked. And in a lot of less rich countries, they just weren't available. But yeah, I think there will be a strong tendency among some people to think in rich countries, well, this is basically over. And A, there's obviously strong humanitarian case against that sort of complacency. And there's also an economic case. You can't run a global economy if quite a lot of people can't go anywhere and quite a lot of countries are worried about different things. The COVID-19 pandemic is very much a a globalised phenomenon. It seems to me very clear that it requires a globalised response and a response that basically says that the rich world is okay, you know, it's basically over. That would be a terrible, not just an abnegation of moral duty, but it would also be a self-inflicted wound for proponents of globalisation to basically sort of like take the profits and leave the losses. Okay, Natasha, Oliver, thank you both very much. To read The Economist's coverage of the pandemic and much more, take out a subscription. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash the jab pod. A story that I found intriguing recently was about how Turkey has decided to resuscitate its tourism industry. The country has declared that holidaymakers will be exempt from COVID-19 lockdowns. Unfortunately, locals have been ordered to stay at home following a surge in infections and deaths. So any foreigners who do go to the country on holiday will find that they have the whole place to themselves. 
To read that, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash thejabpod to find the best subscription offer. It's in the notes for this episode. One country that seems to have grossly underestimated its COVID-19 death toll is Mexico. Official statistics put the tally at just over 200,000 dead. But the number of excess deaths is double that figure. Travel there and you'll find people reeling from an agonising year. The pandemic is having a huge effect here. It's not just that lots of people have either fallen sick or have relatives who've died of it. Uh, It's also the economic effect has been huge. The economy last year contracted by 8.5%, which is nearly what you'd expect during a war. And a lot of ordinary Mexicans are really feeling that. Robert Guest is The Economist's foreign editor, who's been reporting from Mexico City. I went with our Mexico bureau chief, Sarah Burke, uh, to a neighbourhood of Mexico City called Los Olivos, uh, which is a, it's a really noisy part of the city. It's a transport hub. We were talking to people in the street about how their past year had been. One woman I really felt for was uh, one who, she was selling single cigarettes and tamales, which is a delicious local dish um, out of a bucket. And firstly, she told us the pandemic had really damaged her business. And the government's provided almost no help at all for small businesses. She said she'd lost two brothers to COVID. They were aged 52 and 62. One of them got tested, saw a doctor, was told to self-isolate, and he died the next day. She also felt that lots of people in Mexico City don't really believe in the pandemic, which is why they go around without masks and they they hold parties. And that may be connected with something of the lack of urgency of messaging from the government. The official death toll from COVID-19 in Mexico is around 200,000. But recent data suggests that the excess deaths in the country is something like two to three times higher. Does that come as a surprise to you? It's been very clear that the official death toll is an undercount and a very large one. It's not because they're falsifying the numbers necessarily, but they certainly haven't been as energetic in testing as they might have been. And the excess death figures are much more likely to be accurate. The Economist's excess death estimates 445,000. And the University of Washington School of Medicine recently estimated that the pandemic had claimed the lives of more than 600,000 people in Mexico. So that's three times the official estimate. It would seem that the death toll here is worse than it is in Brazil, which is much better known for having a terrible pandemic. Clearly, the vaccine is a way to stop those numbers from going up much further. Uh, How has the rollout been in the country? The rollout started quite slowly. It's now picking up pace. It got to about 17% of the total population, and they're taking it very seriously. There were some initial problems. I mean, to begin with, the president said, let's vaccinate old people in rural areas first because they're poorer. But actually, the people in rural areas far less likely to have it than the people in the cities because it's not as crowded. So that was a bad idea. That's now been dropped. He also said, let's vaccinate frontline healthcare workers 
in the public sector, but not in the private sector, because he has this enormous antipathy to the private sector. So that was a very foolish decision. Um, the upper middle classes long ago decided they were just going to fly to America and get jabbed there. But it's, yeah, it's, it's rolling out reasonably well, and the infection rates have started to come down quite a lot. But you know, there's always the problem of supply. There is worldwide a problem of how do you get hold of enough of these things. And I think Mexico is looking to the United States to give it some, and that's already started. You could almost imagine a sort of really hardball thing where Mexico could say, look, we really need some vaccines because if things get really bad here, maybe we won't be able to stop all the Central American migrants from rushing towards your border. I mean, I think they're in a position where they can slightly use some leverage to get the Americans to help them. It's another form of vaccine diplomacy, as we discussed on the podcast a few weeks ago. Um, do you have a sense of what's in store for Mexico when it comes to the pandemic? Where is it going to go from here, do you think? Well, my hope is that things are going to get better as the vaccine rolls out. People are still very nervous. Not everyone knows whether the vaccines are going to work. And of course, you know, some of them are not the most rigorously tested vaccines in the world. But clearly, vaccination offers the best hope for Mexico to get out of this situation. And um, people are praying that the worst is over, but there's still uh, a lot of pain to go. Natasha, why is Mexico such an interesting case study? Well, Mexico is an upper middle income country. It's actually the 15th largest economy in the world. And COVID is having an impact here, a huge impact here. Uh, the deaths make sense to me, actually. Mexico has a really bad problem with obesity. About 36% of adults are obese. And this is one of the risk factors for COVID. But like Brazil, it's a country with resources. And it is a country that could have done better, that should have done better. And yes, vaccinations help, but when you have an outbreak that's running out of control, you can't vaccinate your way out of an outbreak. And we've seen that in many countries that have vaccinated extensively. Um, the issue is that vaccinations take time to work, they take time to roll out. So vaccination is part of a sort of medium term strategy to defeat the virus. You're always going to have to use interventions when you have an outbreak like social distancing, like lockdowns, like masking and things like that. Those things don't go away. Robert mentioned in, in there as well that Mexico might try and sort of cajole America to share its vaccines um, with, with the country. Oliver, what do you think the likelihood of that is? That do, Will America share? As Natasha pointed out earlier, there are vaccines in America which have been made there but haven't been approved for use there. And I would think that this would be a sort of like high priority. And I would have thought that Mexico would be an excellent destination for those vaccines. There is, of course, the additional worry that one thing that the pandemic is proving, unfortunately, but quite strongly, is not having a good government is really not good for your health. There are places where good governments have been unable to act, but there are also places where bad governments have effectively chosen not to act. And as vaccines become available, that's a concern that you really have to keep at the top of your mind. Natasha, do you think that, what, what do you think the relationship between America and Mexico will be regards vaccinations? I think the US will share doses with Mexico because they already have loaned doses to Mexico and the political pressure on the border is so great. 
that they will be inclined to do that. And the fact that rich people are flying to America and being encouraged, actually, in many cases, from Latin America, from Mexico, is a real problem. So, you know, we're seeing wealthy people being able to access vaccine by just flying into America, and that's extremely troubling. So you don't want any of that to happen. You really want vaccines to go to the countries where they're going to be used. I'm just intrigued in a slightly surreal idea by the idea of loaning vaccines. Is there a sort of like repo guy who comes and takes the immunity out if you don't keep up the payments? So, you know, as is often the case when governments do things, you don't get explanations for what's going on. But <laughs> and this is my this is my take on what happened. America had some spare doses. It didn't politically feel able to give them away, so it called them a loan uh, because Mexico also has a supply of vaccines. And so they said, well, we'll give you a vaccine as long as you promise to give us the same number of doses back. And that kind of dealt with the political problem. Whether that loan is actually repaid is another matter whatsoever. Well, <laughs> we will discuss Latin America in much more detail in uh, a future episode of The Jab. Coronavirus variant known as B117 is playing a significant a new role. Variant named P1 was identified in 42 against B1351, which is associated with South Africa. The about the B1617 um, virus variant that was first identified in India, we are classifying this as a variant of concern at the global level. Late last year, the course of the pandemic took an unwelcome twist. Reports began to emerge of what are known as variants of concern mutant strains of the coronavirus that are more transmissible and which could potentially worsen the pandemic. Several variants of concern have now been identified and have no doubt played a part in how COVID-19 has spread around the world. But the question is, what's yet to come? When the variants arose, I think that changed the game completely in terms of virus study, virus control. And so the turning point for me is the variant era, if you can call it that, Sharon Peacock is a professor of public health and microbiology at the University of Cambridge. She's also director of COG UK, which is one of the world's largest COVID-19 virus sequencing projects. Listeners are likely to know that there are four variants of concern globally. So the first one that became a variant of concern arose in the UK in Kent, then a second in South Africa and a third in Brazil, also detected in Japan. And very recently now, a variant that appears to have risen in India has become a variant of concern. So really since around October time, we've noticed that there are these variants popping up all around the world, but they're all kind of doing roughly the same thing in terms of their biology. For a virus to be successful over time, particularly as we become more immune, it has to get fitter and better. That might mean spreading faster. It might mean finding a chink in our immune armour. How much do we know about the impacts of the variants on the currently licensed vaccines. I mean, there's early data to show that many of the vaccines from Pfizer and AstraZeneca and stuff do provide protection, at least from serious illness and death. And I just wonder what your thoughts are on whether these vaccines will need to be tweaked relatively soon or are they doing well? I think they're doing remarkably well. We're seeing disease rates go down in places with high vaccine take up. And so that's a startling success, actually. The variant that I was most worried about was the variant that first emerged in South Africa. And I was worried about that for two reasons. 
One is that in the laboratory, it had the least neutralization of the virus. So in other words, you have the virus or a pseudovirus and you bring along some antibodies from people who've either had infection or they've had the immunization. And the idea is that the antibody kind of neutralizes the effect of the virus and the ability to neutralize the virus when there was characteristics of the South African variant that had the lowest neutralization. And I worried about that, actually. And so when a study result came out in a kind of relatively small study in South Africa of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which suggested that it didn't protect against mild to moderate disease, it was in a very young population. So you didn't really see whether or not it protected from severe outcomes and deaths. And so it was in my mind as kind of the top concern. Actually, some recent data that's come out from other countries are much more reassuring. So a recent study published from Qatar, where we have both the Kent variant and the South African variant both circulating at the same time. In that population, they've had the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, and the data from there actually is really encouraging. And so protection from severe disease or death, it was in the order of 97.4% protection, but also prevention from infection was, they calculated to be 74% or 75%. The other thing is there's a company that's testing out a vaccine, particularly for the South African variant. And again, we know that from very early studies that does raise antibodies effectively in people. So that's the Moderna vaccine. So we all spend a lot of time worrying about these things. Actually, in the real world at the moment, the vaccines are doing very well. Nevertheless, the virus will continue to evolve and there'll be new variants. Um, Do you think that there'll become a time when the vaccines will have to be tweaked to become more effective. Is that something that's inevitable? We've never been in a situation before with this virus. And people ask myself and other scientists quite a lot, what do you think is coming? It's very difficult to predict. I think it likely that we will have to have changes in the vaccines over time. So the development of the vaccine towards the South African variant is very welcome because it shows that it can be done quite quickly and tested quite quickly. Looking ahead, I think it's likely that we're going to get into a situation where, like influenza, we'll be looking at the circulating virus in the world, looking at the best vaccine to uh, develop for that. So a virus that keeps changing and then we'll have to sort of keep changing our response to it. Mm. But I mean, do we know enough about this coronavirus or even past ones to know how often these sorts of viruses change into something that does it evade immunity? In terms of the trajectory of what the virus might do, People are having kind of attempts at trying to model what's going to happen in the future when the virus might emerge that's of even more concern than the current ones. I think it's really unpredictable, actually. And so for me, it's more a case of getting our vaccines, driving down the rates of disease. Because actually, if you prevent infection, you prevent the emergence of variants anyway. They only occur because the virus is replicating in people's uh, bodies. And then we need the mechanisms in place to do the surveillance to see what's emerging over time, particularly when we are all have been vaccinated and we're immune. And I think that's when it starts to get a step up in challenge in terms of knowing that the virus is circulating in an immune population, what will happen next? On that question of keeping the surveillance going, of course, databases like yours uh, depend on sequences being submitted from all over the place. And that's how we have those eyes. But of course, not everywhere can sequence. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on certain parts of the world won't have access to sequencing as easily as the UK or the US and other places have. Could there be variants popping up in those places that we just don't know about until it's too late? It's inevitable that there are variants in the world that we don't know about because we're not able to sequence them. But for me, sequencing 
is in the same bucket as vaccines in terms of equity. Putting a vaccine into a country where you don't know what you're vaccinating against, it's the right thing to do, but it's much better if you've actually got the sequence data. So for me, there's a big conversation to be had around how people who have the expertise and the knowledge to do sequencing can share that fairly with other people. That's not going to happen overnight, but it has to be a really important ambition for everybody. It's allied with getting vaccines out to the world. Natasha, in my chat with Sharon Peacock, she she declined to sort of predict whether vaccine-resistant variants will emerge, although the hints are that perhaps that will happen. What's your prediction? We've spent the last six months really worrying a lot about variants. And I'm not saying we shouldn't worry about variants, but we've created quite a lot of concern and unease among people. And vaccines are doing okay so far. And so I think while we should definitely plan accordingly for vaccine-resistant variants, I think we should try not to spend too much time worrying as individuals about it because the effect of the pandemic are not just on our health and our economies, they're also on our psychology as well. And we need to try and stop living in fear if we're living in countries that have done well to control their outbreaks and have vaccinated well. I do think there's one thing to bear in mind, which is that with mRNA and also with better understanding of the basis of broadly neutralizing responses, it's not inconceivable to think that there might be um, vaccines which are better suited to all variants than the first generation, rather than that you'd have to retailor a vaccine for each specific variant. There's probably mechanisms of immunological escape that the virus can discover that you might be able to look at more broadly. And for what it's worth, I know that there are people working on this idea also about flu vaccines. Although at the moment, it is important to have vaccines against different sorts of flu, there are a number of people working on universal flu vaccines, and they're doing so because they think that the way we now understand the molecular biology of the immune system suggests that there might be some stuff to be done there. Natasha, you talked about psychological impacts of variants, and I I, I totally agree with you. I think we shouldn't be too concerned. But do you think that the concern around variants has impacted how vaccines are distributed and shared around the world? Yes. The variants have caused rich countries to hold on to more of their vaccines for longer, or at least to not be so willing to share, because there is this thought that maybe um, later on in the year that booster shots will need to be given And then also, of course, countries are also thinking now about vaccinating children. And in the EU, the UK, a bunch of other rich countries, that could delay the point at which they reach uh, surplus doses by about two months. Oliver, final point here. Um, We've talked a lot in this show about vaccine equity, but Sharon Peacock at the end raised an interesting equity question around sequencing technology. What what do you make of her point there? I think it's unbelievably important and I like endorse it wholeheartedly. As someone who's spent much of my career tracking the extraordinary advances of biomedicine in the lab, it's quite remarkable to think that there's a time coming now when they are really getting out and making a change in the world. And they only make a real change in the world if they make a change in the whole world. I think the pandemic may mark a turning point in things that people have long talked about, but for various reasons, 
among them, it's really hard, um, such as producing really rugged PCR equipment so that you can do tests everywhere, rugged and cheap and easy sequencing equipment. And I think that by spreading the capabilities and increasing the global reach of these technologies and the number of people who can use them, that could be a very big and beneficial change to the world as a whole. The achievements of biotechnology have been a real standout star in this pandemic. But as the Economist data team's modelling shows, you really need to understand where the pandemic is, where infections have spread to, perhaps not obvious places. And you need to understand that in order to make sure that vaccination programmes are being deployed in the right places. And that's the only way that this pandemic is going to end. Now, before we go, um, do either of you have any stories you'd like to share with the listeners? So the news story this week um, that caught my eye was that uh, school children are going to not be needing to wear masks in school. And of course, that's connected to the reopening in Britain uh, today. And uh, the PM, Boris Johnson, was saying that people should engage in cautious cuddling, which I'm no idea, no idea at all what a cautious cuddle uh, is like. Uh, so I'm looking forward to giving my mum a very big hug, which I haven't done now in um, over a year. Well, that's lovely. So you, you can give her a very enthusiastic cuddle, I would say. He doesn't have to a be A very cautious. enthusiastic but cautious hug. Natasha, Oliver, thank you both very much indeed. Cheers, Anna. Thank you. That's all from us. The show's producer is Hannah Mourinho. The sound designer is Nico Rofast. And the editor is John Shields. If you like the podcast, please do spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radio at In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. We'll have more on The Jab next week when we'll zero in on how the pandemic has affected Asia. 